Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Age of Ecology. I think it's the greatest failure of Christianity in the total course of human history, that they are not able to deal with the ecological crisis, and they don't even understand it. The Pope's statement on New Year's Day was terribly disappointing. It just takes a rather pragmatic, moralistic approach to the subject. This has to do with the very quintessence of religion. If we lose the natural world, we lose the sense of the divine. Religion comes from this astounding brilliance of the natural world. Father Thomas Berry is a passionist priest and a furious critic of his fellow Christians. He believes that Christianity has been so preoccupied with the human drama of fall and redemption that it has become tragically insensitive to nature, deaf to its voices, blind to its beauties, and ignorant of its revelations, and what he called a kind of autism. Father Berry describes himself as a geologian rather than a theologian, and he has devoted a lifetime of teaching and writing to trying to reawaken religious sensitivity towards nature. He thinks that the greatest challenge of our time is cosmological, to incorporate the scientific narrative of the origins and development of the universe within a religious framework. He calls this narrative the new story, and he is currently collaborating with physicist Brian Swim on a book about it. Tonight, in the third hour of our series, The Age of Ecology, we present an interview with Thomas Berry. Now 76 years old, Father Berry lives in the Bronx in northern Manhattan in a religious retreat secluded from the city. The house sits beside an ancient red oak in a small park with a panoramic view of the Hudson River. David Cayley called on him there and recorded this conversation. The book, the collection of your essays that the Sierra Club published was called The Dream of the Earth. And I, I thought perhaps that would be a starting point there. The, why the dream of the earth? Well, that had to do with how we understand the universe. And there are some people that see the universe as a very ordered affair, some as um, chance and total disorder. But my proposition is that no matter how you look at the universe, it's a fantastic world so that there's a strong element of fantasy in the universe. You get this from all the, the variety of color and shape of flowers, just fantastic. And the way in which the stars are splashed across the heavens, the amazing proliferation of the microbial life forms. No matter where you go or what you see, there is an element of fantasy. So since the, our fantasy, our imagination is most vivid in our dream life, then I figured that, that whatever the ultimate explanation of existence is, there's a strong element of dream, of fantasy. So when I say the dream of the earth, I'm not thinking of a human dream of the earth, but of the earth itself as subject dreaming, or the universe is dreaming, so that it's one way in which to take of things. Right. And what does that say about us? Well, it says that if we want to be very much alive or to be very much into the game, 
We need fantasy. We need dream. And that's the, where all the trouble comes from, of trying to establish order into the planet and to take over the dispersion of life and then put it all into agricultural roles, mile after mile after mile, and that's the travesty of monoculture. I was thinking also it suggests that we're being dreamed if it's the Earth that's dreaming. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that's also why the forces that function at the deepest level of our own lives um, is our dream life. And this discovery by Carl Jung and some extent by Freud is one of the greatest of our human accomplishments, I think, to understand that our lives are expressed at their deepest and are controlled by uh, a depth of understanding that gives expression to itself in our dream configurations. It's an impossible and probably even presumptuous question, but how, when and how did you begin to become aware of this? You well, called yourself a geologian. Uh, yeah. Was there a time when you were a theologian? Well, I'm not sure I was ever a theologian, but I was a dreamologian from the beginning of my life, from the time I was seven, eight, nine years old, my dream life. I dream not necessarily at night, but all day. I have two phases to my mind. And so my, my dream life and my waking life are not two different moments. They are simultaneous processes. So my, I dream, and I think maybe most people do, like we are constantly energized by our dreams. And it's the dream that guides and energizes. That's why, again, to get back to our problems now, we have to dream a new type of a universe, a viable universe. We're victimized now by this industrial dream. That's why all advertising is a kind of a well, it's the dream world that's presented to us, uh, a, a world of blessedness. But it's the dream, a loose revision of heaven world. And anything can take us there in a consumer society. They'll say, here you are, your deprived state. Take this bar of soap and then you'll get to paradise. Or buy this automobile, <laughs> take you to paradise. Uh, so that with all advertising is wonder world advertising and our dream world the dream world wonder world is that illusion that's held out to, to be fulfilled by all our mechanical contrivances and what we're really getting is waste world rather than wonder world but we still are going by this type of an illusion. And a person wonders how much longer the thing can continue because it's gotten so hysterical now that I don't know where it can go. So you're using the term dream now, shading it towards vision and then towards what you've called functional cosmology or story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah the story of the universe is the story of the unfolding dream of the universe, a person might say if a person stays with this type of terminology, because the evolutionary process is uh, 
the narrative of this uh, sequence of true wonder worlds that have emerged from the original flaring forth of the energies of the universe, the articulation, and then in the supernova explosion, the constellation of the 90-some elements, and then that fantastic shaping of the solar system, the planet Earth out of stardust, and so forth. It's just uh, staggering in its magnificence. Where, in your view, does the Wonder World story come from? Well, it comes to a large extent from the millennial vision of the prophets. Well, it's not so much the prophets. They had the day of the Lord of the prophets when there would be justice and peace and abundance. And this was taken up in the apocalyptic literature of Daniel and on in. It culminated in John's uh, book of Revelation, where in those last chapters, particularly from 17 to 22, he gives us this sense that history is going to find in, within history fulfillment where humans would reach a trans, um, a, a state beyond the human condition as we ordinarily conceive it, and where there would be the reign of the saints for a thousand years. The dragon would be chained up and this wonder world would come. Now that wonder world vision of John was transposed in the 16th, 17th century from a fulfillment in terms of spiritual, divine-type fulfillment to a fulfillment that humans would bring about themselves through science and technology. And that's why Francis Bacon is so important. He was the first person that began to envisage the process that we ought to torture nature until nature gave up its secrets and we could establish this wonderful mode of being within the temporal order through our own efforts. And so that this vision that he proposed is taken up into the idea of progress later on by Fontenelle and then on into the Enlightenment period of the 18th century and then on into the 19th century advances in technology and then into the 20th century. And then when we went into the petrochemical age after the Second World War, then everything has exploded. But the but that vision is just uh, tearing everything to pieces, though it's, it's a pathology. So we have two, um, two visions that are functioning now. It's what I would call the pathological vision of those who think we can get to a state of blessedness through our technologies and through our mechanisms and through our consumption patterns, and those that insist that we have to deal with the earth within the limitations that the earth imposes on us. We have to deal with the earth on its terms. The earth's not going to deal with us on our terms. That's certain. And we're seeing now how much damage we are doing by not listening to what the earth is telling us. Doesn't the view that the ecological crisis comes out of this dysfunctional story, just coming out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, yeah. doesn't that run into the objection that other societies with quite different stories have uh, been equally hard on the earth, 
Even that, as one writer said in a volume I read recently, pollution begins in prehistory. Can it really all be tied to this one Judeo-Christian narrative? Contemporary, the contemporary phase of it can be tied into the Western narrative. And although there was, um, from the Neolithic period, a certain amount of human stress on the planet, uh, that was within certain limitations. It's true also that China, with the finest philosophy of human-Earth relations, has devastated its continent. And began the Neolithic, they did their agriculture, and then they started cutting down trees, and they never stopped, and now the the Chinese mainland is being washed into the sea. But, they, but they've come to some controls over it, but it's still just a, a ruined um, continent to such a large extent. And Plato complained in his time that the wooded areas of Greece were already devastated, that the springs had dried up, so forth. So it's, the human does not have a good record in the post-Neolithic period. But there wasn't exactly that mystique of consumption that came in with our Western world or with that technological expertise so that we have stepped up the whole process a thousandfold. So uh, merely to say that, that others didn't do very well themselves doesn't uh, remove that judgment of the West that we're the geniuses at it. And we really started disturbing the chemistry of the planet. These other countries didn't disturb the chemistry of the atmosphere. And they didn't soil the sea waters. And they didn't have these great drift nets 40 miles long and 40 feet deep to scoop up everything and sign. They couldn't touch the ozone layer. They couldn't build up these... Um, this carbon dioxide layer in the air that possibly would give us a kind of um, a greenhouse effect. So, and they couldn't put all the pollutions into the earth with fertilized herbicides um, and uh, pesticides. So, we are functioning in very different ways, more deadly ways than anybody ever thought. If we're doing this as a result of a, a cosmology, a, a story, mm -hmm. then presumably the antidote is another story. That's right. A new story, you've said. A new story. That's my proposal, and I think we have a new story, a new sense of the universe that we know now by our empirical observations. It's given us a story of an emergent universe that has gone through a long sequence of transformations and has given us uh, a wonderful world. The difficulty is that the scientists have presented it to us in a meaningless way, as mechanism, as chance. Um, where, and so that the religious people have been turned off as regards this, so that they can't see this as their sacred story. What is needed is to tell this story that we know now as both a sacred process as well as a physical process, that it's both spiritual as well as material. And once we see that, that there's no such thing as uh, matter devoid of spirit, that all patterning is uh, psychic-spiritual. Uh, matter, by definition, is indeterminism. Pure indeterminism is an impossibility. 
so that anything that can be understood must have intelligibility, and intelligibility is a psychic dimension. We can also see that we ourselves come out of this process. And we know that we are, have a psychic dimension to our existence. Where did it come from if we are not activating in a very special way that dimension of the psychic dimension of the universe itself, particularly of the planet Earth? There's one other aspect of this that's enormously important, is subjectivity. And the need to see the world around us as subject, not simply as object to be acted on, but as subject uh, revealing itself and revealing the deep mysteries of existence, speaking to us. Uh, as soon as we become autistic and don't hear the voices, then we're in trouble. If we don't hear the voice of the mountains or the rivers or the trees or the flowers or the birds or the butterfly or whatever, then we've closed ourselves off from the quintessence of existence. And nothing can have very much meaning. And if nothing has very much meaning, then we're going to smash it. So that this uh, process is... Uh, it's either going to be deadly because of its meaninglessness or we're going to revere it and have a certain uh, awe, a certain veneration, even a certain worship of the world about us in its as manifestation of the divine. How does this autism take hold, in your opinion? Uh, the decisive moment, I think, was with Descartes, when Descartes was the first person professionally and philosophically to deny subjectivity of the outer world. So it's since his time. But he could do that because to some extent in the Western world we were not, never that sufficiently in communion with the natural world. Uh, the natural world did uh, function as a scripture, up until the 16th century, because Christians always uh, mentioned that there were two books of Revelation, one the natural world, the other the Bible. Uh, so the natural world had the status of divine manifestation, and that's why St. Thomas, in this wonderful selection of the Summa Theologica, in the first part of it, in Article 47, or Question 47, Article 1, where he talks about the great diversity of the universe, that's the question, why are there so many diverse things? Well, he answers, because the divine could not mirror itself in any one reality. It created the vast differences of things so that the beauty or that, that was lacking to one would be supplied by the other. And the whole universe together would participate in and manifest the divine uh, splendor more than any single being whatever. So that... There did exist in the Christian world this sense of the natural world as having an intimate role in relationship to the human, in relationship to the human deepest aspects of human spirituality. But then uh, I think at the moment of the Black Death, I think that this was a traumatic experience. Uh, I don't want to say that that was a single event, traumatic as it was when perhaps a third of the people of Europe died. I don't want to uh, put the whole of later history uh, 
onto that single incident, but it was a stupendous um, experience for the Western world. They had no explanation of the Black Death. They had no sense of germs. They didn't had no explanation of illness. They could only conclude that the world must have be in a decadent phase that it was being judged as evil by the divine being punished and that's when in the art you began to get these judgment scenes in the art of europe the naturalism of giotto in the early 14th century was diminished the black death came in at 1347 to 1349 and the the art was changed at that period uh, and the person begins to see some of the of the changes in the art in the 15th century. You get the the dance of death. You get the morality plays that nothing is worthwhile that you can't take with you when you die. So the only things you can take with you when you die are your virtues or your spiritual things. And so the natural world is uh, begins to lose uh, some of its qualities. And then you get this devotionalism throughout the 15th century, this background of the Reformation period of the 16th century. You get this intense devotion, this intense experience of faith, that you're saved by faith and not by works. And this whole Christian uh, appreciation of the natural world, I think, is profoundly dimmed at this time. And that's where the pathology comes in, in my estimation. And what is the pathology? The way I describe it is this, that particularly in the modern times, there is in the Western psyche a deep, hidden rage against the human condition, that we are not going to accept the human condition. Now, religious people want to deal with this by establishing a faith transcendence to the human tradition and a blessedness that they look forward in some future world. The others are determined uh, to, to challenge that and say we can transform this planet if only we have the courage to take control of it, to transform it. To, and that's, why I th that's what I think we're doing. We are ready to take the entire planet to pieces because we're not going to accept the human condition. We're not going to accept life on the conditions under which the earth gives us life. And so uh, we are on this plundering um, phase, and the more the technology we get, the more the scientific development takes place, the less respect we're going to have for the planet, and the more we're going to tear it to pieces until we, I don't know what. It's obvious now that it's self-defeating that we're calling ourselves infinitely more, re more misery than we're healing. And so it's, um, there's some big questions. So you see the materialism, the frenetic materialism of our own time as a kind of demonic parody yeah. of, of a redemption theology. Absolutely, it is. And uh, to get over that, a person has to find a way of dealing with well, well, let me give it to you this way in my three sentences that I repeat endlessly. Three sentences. I'll put it all for you. <laughs> the first sentence. In the 20th century, the glory of the human has become the desolation of the earth. Second sentence. 
the desolation of the earth is becoming the destiny of the human. Third sentence. All human institutions, professions, programs, and activities must now be judged primarily by the extent to which they inhibit, ignore, or foster a mutually enhancing human-earth relationship. Now that has to be the norm. Now whatever we do, it has to be mutually enhancing. It has to be relating to the outer world as subject, not as object to be exploited, but as subject to be communed with. If we lose that communion capacity, as I think we have, then we're going on endlessly in this pattern that we've established. But I used to say of my generation, and I've lived, I was born 1914, I've lived from almost from pre-industrial to post-industrial in the sense that I, as a child, I lived in a world that was only beginning to be taken over by the industrial process. I was astounded as a child to find out how how inadequate people were in their report to the natural world and what they were willing to do to it, to build roads and to uh, increase the automobiles and all that. And I was uh, amazed to see what happened to the streams, the meadows, and the woodlands of the area where I lived. Now I go back there and there's just extensive devastation. There are all kinds of of shopping malls and parking lots and headquarters of corporations and industrial parks. And it's a world of desolation. I just come from talking at three of the campuses um, the, of the University of North Carolina in Greensboro, Asheville, and Boone. And I took over the question of the destiny of North Carolina. What's this got to do with our destiny? We should be able to create an internal economy. We have the mountain area, the Piedmont section, the coastal plain, the estuary region. We have all these splendid resources. And why can't we have our own internal economy and build our culture here? Are we so dumb that we can't structure our own music, our own poetry, and schools and educate ourselves, not to compete with this industrial world, but to be ourselves. If the whole community of the state got together with its creativity, it could create something, it could be something. Now it's dissolving into nothing. It may have a better GNP, uh, gross national product, but the gross earth product there is certainly terribly diminished. So what we paid for it in terms of the land and the vegetation and the, the life systems and the integrity of existence there uh, is, is it's a total imbalance. Tonight on Ideas, you're listening to an interview between David Cayley and Father Thomas Berry, part three of our series, The Age of Ecology. I'd like to explore with you for a few minutes uh, what this means for the Christian tradition. Uh, I remember a few years ago when I first met you, you counseled putting the Bible on the shelf for a few years and reading the scripture of the natural world. I've thought about it ever since, and every year it seemed to me a worse idea <laughs> in a certain way. Uh, because it seems to me that there are resources there for re-understanding this relationship. 
But anyway, I, I'm not telling you what to think. I'm asking uh, how you now see this question. Well, there are resources in the scriptures uh, of, the, of the world, the different scriptures. But uh, the reason why I say that ultimately is because the Genesis story in this sense is not our story. We have a new story. We don't see the world as just put there, uh, as in the Genesis story. Uh, we experience the universe as being something like 14 billion years old, as an emergent process. And we see the Earth as coming into existence at a certain phase. And we see the life systems develop. And this is our personal story. Um, there's something unreal about trying to uh, situate ourselves simply in the Genesis context. What we need to do is to deal with both of these. We do need to deal with both. And to, both are valid in their own context, their own way. But I think the story of the universe as we have it, and to envisage that as sacred story, is the most powerful thing we have available to us. I think it's a new revelatory experience. It's a qualitatively different revelatory experience. It's not the same as the other uh, scriptural experiences, but there's a, a great difficulty between a spatial mode of consciousness and a time-developmental mode of consciousness. This is probably the most extensive change in human consciousness, certainly since the Neolithic, maybe in the last uh, 60 or 100,000 years, which is the period of modern humans, of the humans from which we are descended. Now, until we come to deal effectively with our, this new account of the universe as a sacred story and can appreciate that this is our personal story, this is our, um, our universe story, our earth, the life story, we're not going to realize that everything in the universe is cousin to everything else. It's genetically related. We're genetically related to everything that exists. We come out of the same life process that the trees come out, or the flowers, or the birds, or whatever. We are relatives, blood relatives in that sense. And this gives something that we don't get from the biblical story. And the reason why I say put the, the biblical story on the shelf for 20 years, I want to take that away not because it's not helpful, but because we're not going to be serious about this other story until we somehow can uh, get, to some extent, detached from this fixation on the biblical story. But isn't there something just as essential in the biblical story from your point of view? Well, certainly it's essential. It's not that it's uh, not uh, essential. That's not the point. The point is that it's inadequate to deal with the problems of our times. It can contribute, but it can't really deal with them. 
because the, it was not given in the first place to deal with these problems. These are different problems that we are dealing with. And uh, as manifestation of this, a person can see that none of the traditional scriptural traditions are able to deal with the crisis we're in at the present time. Look at the Christian churches. They're not doing anything substantial. So why? It doesn't concern them. No, the world can come and go, and they will get their redemption. What they're interested in is redemption, not in how to live in this world, but how to get out of it. How do you see, see the figure of the Christ and the doctrine of the Incarnation, then? Well, we uh, need to have a new sense of the Christ reality, and particularly the Christ of St. Paul and St. John. In uh, St. Uh, Paul, particularly in the first chapter of Colossians, he says that in Christ all things hold together and so forth. This is the Christ um, image or the Christ archetype or the Christ reality in its cosmological dimensions as the logos, as the ordering principle of the universe. So that the Christ reality is not simply the Jesus of Nazareth as an individual, a human individual, along with the uh, divine, that special mode of divine presence that's there. But uh, the Christ is a way of talking about the universe in its sacred dimension. So what we need to understand is that the Christ dimension to the emergent universe from the beginning. Just like a spiritual dimension, there's a numinous sacred aspect of, of the universe from the beginning. And for the Christian, there's a Christ dimension. The Buddhists would say there's a Buddhist dimension. Now, and both are valid in their way, and they accentuate different things, and they're qualitatively different experiences. They're not interchangeable. But the the validity of both can be sustained. And that, so that I want to have a Christ, uh, emergent Christ, uh, that's integral with the emergent universe. Does that make the idea of an historical incarnation in a certain place, in a certain people, that makes that pretty well a stumbling block, doesn't it? No, it's simply that... Uh, the universe articulates itself in specific instances. The, the universe is not just vague and generalized, so that the, the for a single individual uh, to bear a special relationship to this uh, process is um, totally understandable in this context. But to think that the specific individual is... Uh, can replace this larger sense of things it would be to say that St. John, when he wrote his prologue, was just dreaming up something fantastic. Now, Teilhard de Chardin, that's one of his great contributions, is to read the emergent universe in these larger terms of John and Paul. And that's what we need now, as long as we are preoccupied with, with textual discussion and with redemption processes, we're not going to have the energy and we're not going to be that concerned with the world about us. And that's my serious concern, that with the, certainly with the Catholic Church, which I am associated with, 
It's total disaster. I think it's the greatest failure of Christianity in the total course of human history, that they are not able to deal with the ecological crisis, and they don't even understand it. The Pope's statement on New Year's Day was terribly disappointing. It just takes a rather pragmatic, moralistic approach to the subject. This has to do with the very quintessence of religion. If we lose the natural world, we lose the sense of the divine. Because um, a religion comes from this astounding brilliance of the natural world. And to diminish the natural world is to diminish divine manifestation. If we have, a, we have a wonderful idea of God because there's so much beauty in the natural world. As that beauty is diminished, our capacity to, uh, to have a divine rapport diminishes. Now, there is this uh, thing that I've said a number of times. If we lived on the moon, our sense of the divine would reflect the lunar landscape. Our... Uh, our imagination would be as dull as the moon, our sensitivities would be as empty, and our intelligence would be almost nothing. In other words, our total interior life, I mean, our sense of the divine, but all our interior spiritual faculties would be profoundly crippled. And for religious people not to see that the assault on the natural world is an assault on their sense of the divine, it just baffles me and why religious people, and why in our universities, why in our seminaries, why in our preaching, why in our bishops' conferences, why the Vatican can't deal with this issue, well, it just stifles me. Is your sense of the divine entirely imminent? Is there room for transcendence in your philosophy? Well, the divine certainly is transcendent. But what access do we have to the divine except through the manifestation? We don't uh, live, St. Thomas says, there's nothing in intelligence that was not first in the senses. In other words, why do we have senses? We're not angels, if they're angel spirits that may have some immediate access to the divine, uh, if they as such exist, that's something else. But we function this way. Why does, uh, do we have an incarnation in the first place? It's because we can see and deal with a specific individual uh, relationship. So why is this great, wonderful world what it is? St. Thomas tells about clearly. It's because the divine uh, participates <coughs> itself. As he says, then goodness communicates itself. So the divine goodness, it overflows in its creation and sharing of itself with the multitude of creatures. And so it's something of a rejection of the divine to reject the creation. Let's presume that the new story can establish itself. And it's then time to take the Bible back down from the shelf because it no longer has this, it no longer reinforces uh, our addiction to a certain dysfunctional story. Am I paraphrasing you okay? What then would be the proper relationship between the new story and the traditional stories, which presumably we will continue to tell and keep? Well, you can tell these two stories in relationship to each other very simply, I think. In fact, I'm doing something now where I take um, 10 or 12 of the basic 
religious orientations in their traditional context and show how to read these in, in this context. For instance, take the, take the doctrine of the Trinity, which is one of the most um, difficult of Christian doctrines to, to talk about, but which is central to Christian belief as many of the basic um, divisions of Christianity would maintain. The cosmological model of the Trinity that I've just presented is perfect. The Bible gives us a family model, the Father, Son, and Spirit. St. Augustine uses a psychological model of, of thought, thinking on thought. That is, it's a more psychological type uh, sense of the Trinity. And then there is the social model of the self, the other, and the community. I propose the cosmological model. The Father would equate with the emergent universe, as always, the creative principle. The Son equates with the articulation, the intelligibility of things, and so would the inner articulation of things would be the Son, and then the bonding, the Holy Spirit. Now this is a perfect model of the Trinity, and a very effective model. Now take baptism. This, would, uh, this story would enhance the baptismal formula this way. In contemporary baptism, we introduce the child um, or the person to be baptized to the divine order and to the human religious community. We do not introduce the child to the natural world or the person baptized to the natural world. But uh, there is um, a ceremony coming from the Omaha Indians where the child is introduced, a newborn child is presented to the four parts of the natural world, to the heavens, and they have a phrase, O ye sun, moon, stars, O ye in the heavens, I bid you hear me. Into your midst has come a new life. Consent ye, we implore, make its path smooth, that it may pass beyond the first deal. And then the clouds and the rain and the winds and all that. I bid you hear me into your midst and so forth. A new life has come. And then to the vegetation, the trees and the animals, and finally to the insects. And then to the whole of the universe. A new life is here. Now, just think how important something like that could be. Because otherwise, uh, uh, any religious ceremony can be alienating rather than communicating or identifying with. You've said in one of the essays that's published in Dream of the Earth, I can't remember which one, you've called for a, a new shamanic personality. What do you mean by this? Well, the shamanic personality is different from the prophetic personality. Sometimes people say we need prophetic types. Uh, it's not prophetic types. The prophet talks to God and God talks to the prophet. And I don't know if either one of them talks in the natural world. But the, uh, but the shamanic type is the person that goes deep into the mystery of the universe and brings back power and direction to a society. It brings back healing because the power is frequently healing power, but supportive power. But the main thing about the shamanic personality is that 
It's, uh, dealing more with the powers of the natural world. We are not accustomed to dealing with the powers of the natural world. To us, that's kind of idolatry or something like that. The prophetic message was to take care of the poor, that the divine worships not ceremonies, but justice to the poor. And at the present time, religion is so overwhelmed by the pathos of the human and efforts to take care of the uh, people that are isolated, that are suffering, and so forth. Uh, well, they um, they're so concentrated on that that uh, the taking care of the natural world looks like a luxury, and uh, an elitism that uh, that a serious person doesn't bother with. Isn't this dichotomy in practice a real one? Aren't people apt to face real decisions along those lines as to which to prefer? Well, I'm not sure. It may seem that way, I, I'm not sure, because I think that this, um, that peace among peoples and the welfare of people can only be achieved by through the earth, through the ecosystem, and that the whole ecosystem is the sacred community with the humans as a part of it. Now, there was in 1980 a study made of, uh, by over 700 scientists from over 100 different nations as regards this question of the future of third world countries. And it was very clear in their statement, it came out in a remarkable statement called Strategy for World Conservation and Development. And it was clearly stated there that peoples have no future except through their environment through their ecosystems. And if those ecosystems are diminished, are wounded, the people uh, are at an impasse. Uh, so these come together. It's, and I frequently say, peace among peoples through peace with the earth. I don't think that our political problems are ever going to be solved by facing each other. I think that we both need to be looking at the same issue and participating in the well-being of the planet. As soon as we do this, I think our antagonisms will, will be diminished because we'll have a common concern for the fact that the air and the water and the soil and the sunshine, that these are a common heritage, they're commons for the whole of the Earth community, and that it takes the whole of the Earth community to preserve it in its integrity so that um, to spoil the air of another people, another country, or another, another community of any kind is to do the worst possible thing for them. So I don't see these as opposed. I see these as very closely related. And I don't... Take this country. We probably lost... Uh, that is um, the North American continent. We probably lost, in the U.S. at least, a third of our topsoil. We're probably losing four to six billion tons of topsoil every year. That's one of the most serious estimates. How can you continue losing that much topsoil and hope to feed people and hope to take care of the poor? Can't be done. So that the it's the heritage of people that's being destroyed. It's their religious heritage. It's their, their cultural heritage. It's their physical heritage. It's their, their only hope for food or shelter or clothing or any type of well-being. 
We have no well-being, just as we have no existence apart from this. Uh, humans are an abstraction in this sense, because what are we without the earth we stand on and all these things that surround us? The air and the water and so on? We're nothing. So that to constantly talk about the human doesn't make sense. Can you speak finally of the of the earth as a context for religious celebration? Well, the earth, uh, the whole of the natural world has been uh, the great liturgy, I call it. It's the universe liturgy more than the earth liturgy, and peoples have generally uh, had their rituals based on the great liturgy of the universe. The seasonal liturgies, the death-rebirth symbolism of the different uh, seasons, the religious buildings are related to directions, so the directions of the universe, or to some sacred spot that uh, geographically has become a sacred uh, place of reference. So uh, the religious ceremonies are fixed into that. The, the creation narrative is associated with the natural world, and the creation narrative is what is recited at all sacred moments, and particularly initiation moments. And with Christians, the Holy Saturday liturgies, the Easter Vigil liturgies, begin always with telling the story of creation. Out of the darkness and the light is um, the candle is lit out of natural forces, and it's carried into the darkness, and this is a re-experiencing of the whole uh, creation process. So the symbolisms of religion uh, would be impossible without the concurrence of all these natural phenomena. It has developed more in a, a spatial mode of consciousness where time moves in seasonal cycles rather than in developmental time. Uh, the developmental time gives us new liturgies. Like we should celebrate not merely the coming of the flowers in spring. We should have a celebration of that moment a hundred thousand years ago when the flowers first came. That was a spirit, great spiritual moment. The the supernovas, uh, where this explosion of the first generation stars that created the ninety some elements. That was a great spiritual moment. You couldn't have spirituality without those elements that were created then. You couldn't have any of this unless you had, say, that wonderful moment when, uh, when oxygen came to be breathable. Originally, it was a poison, but then the, um, there came a new type of life that could, uh, could enter into that phenomenon. These are all great spiritual moments, and this, um, uh, there's need to enter deeply into this process, and the more we do it, the more wonderful the religious expression will be. Life is celebration. What do the birds do? They celebrate. They fly in such wonderful soaring cycles. What do the fish do? They celebrate. They just, they're so colorful, and the flowers, and the, the grasses, and the, every living form celebrates. And the human simply has to know how to celebrate. And life is not having a job. Life is knowing how to celebrate creatively 
in a fluorescent universe. Tonight on Ideas, David Cayley presented a conversation with Father Thomas Berry. The series is called The Age of Ecology, and it continues next Friday evening with Vandana Shiva and Frederick Apfel-Marglin. Production assistants, Faye McPherson and Gail Brownell, technical operations, Lorne Tulk, and production by Jill Eisen. Transcripts of this eight-part series are available for $20. Send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Ecology, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. We've also prepared a free reading list to supplement this series, and you can get that by writing to us at Ideas, Ecology, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Monday evening on Ideas, Family Stories. I hope you'll join me. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.